0: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team, with the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print
1: and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome back to the Everything You Wanted to Know About podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. I'm joined by Sir Paul Nurse for the second and final part of our series on biology, Last time, we talked cells, DNA, and genes. And today, we'll be linking these concepts to mutations, evolution, Charles Darwin, and even the poetry of his grandfather, Erasmus. So, in the last episode, you explained to us how genes are the basis of hereditary. But, Paul, how do genes get passed on?
0: So, heredity is central to life. Um, every time a cell reproduces, itself. It copies its genes, the basis of heredity. And what those genes do is essentially encode the information that cells need um, to grow, divide, reproduce. And um, that information is also the basis um, for our cells. We're made up of, of many, many cells, of course, Um, But when we reproduce, we reproduce through a single cell. So we receive those genes through the sperm, which is one cell, and the egg, which is another, that come together. And it is through heredity that we get evolution by natural selection. So let me just sort of describe that very briefly. This is Charles Darwin's great idea. And it it works uh, works like this, really. So, and I'm going to talk about it, not um, in terms of human beings or plants and so on, but back to cells, because cells show it in its simplest form. So imagine you've got cells um, growing and reproducing, and let's imagine they've got, um, say, a red coat. And let's say that the red coat is very attractive to a predator. It likes eating cells which are red, okay? So now... Um, that red coat is caused by um, a gene, which says "have a red coat." Now let's now imagine a mutation occurs in that gene. so the coat is blue, right? Now, maybe if you're a, a blue cell, uh, your predator doesn't like to eat you. It doesn't like the look of you, okay? So if you now have a, um, a mutation that makes a blue cell, that won't be eaten, and so that survives and divides much more efficiently than a red cell. So you've turned a red cell into a blue cell, and that and that blue cell works better because it doesn't get eaten by something else. And that's a very simple example of evolution by natural selection. And if you imagine that happening in far more complicated situations like our reproduction, then you can see how you acquire properties which have purpose that help you live better, Entirely without planning, just um, by accident, and that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this idea. You don't need a creator or some a designer. It just happens that the variation that the hereditary brings about is selected for um, variation that actually works and is more effective at allowing the cells or the organisms to grow and reproduce, and so you get operation as a whole through this very um, random process. And it, 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 it's a way of getting um, function and, and and things working without having them being designed.
1: But so if mutations are key to it, how does a mutation actually happen?
0: Yes, that's a good question. Mutations happen in a variety of ways. The, the first way is that uh, because Um, genes are made up of these uh, bases, A, G, C, T. They have to be copied precisely every time they are um, uh, replicated or uh, 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 doubled. But occasionally, there'll be a mistake. So you might change an A into a G, for example. And then you have a mutation. So it occurs naturally just because of a low level of error in the way you copy DNA. It can also occur, uh, mutations, uh, if you have um, a a DNA damaging agent. So sunlight has got UV and that can damage the DNA in your cells and that can cause mutations, which is why um, certain cancers are caused by sunlight because they damage the genes important for controlling Um, the uh, division of cells and that can lead to cancer. So uh, DNA damage can be caused by UV light or by chemicals. Um, So there's two main ways of doing it. One is just um, normal processing of making a a bit of a mistake when you copy DNA. Another is an external um, effect like um, radiation or um, a chemical.
1: But not all mutations will lead to an aspect of a evolution of of a cell.
0: No, uh, that's true too. It's entirely random. Um, So some mutations will just destroy the gene and kill the cell or kill the organism. Others will change the way it works. In the example I used of a red-coated cell becoming a blue-coated cell, it changes it from red to blue, um, and that may have um, consequences. Often the consequences don't help the cell or the organism very much, and just occasionally it does, and it makes it work better. And then that's what is selected for during evolution.
1: So you say evolution by natural selection, so they're not the same thing, is that right?
0: Um, Evolution by natural selection. Evolution is the the change the change of a of a, of an organism and eventually a species natural selection is because you select naturally uh, like um uh, 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 animals in the african plain um who can run faster can run away from a lion for example and that's natural selection but actually we can also use um um artificial selection human beings so And this is the way that uh, Darwin started to think about this. Because you know there's um, people who breed pigeons, pigeon fanciers, and you get lots of different types of pigeons. And Charles Darwin used to go and talk to the pigeon fanciers and breeders. So let's say they wanted um, a pigeon with a big tail. They would select um, pigeons with big tails and mate them together. So this was artificially selecting who should mate with who so you get bigger tails and uh, that's pigeon fancying but actually it, that's been really important the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago when we got um um wheat and barley and rice and so on was because our ancestors noticed that certain plants they saw in the wild had bigger seeds and uh, and then um selected them crossed them together and gradually selected um, new plants that uh, actually we could now turn into agriculture. So the whole basis of agriculture depends upon artificial evolution by artificial selection. It's, uh, that's, that's why we can now um, feed so many more people today than we could have done when we were Stone Age peoples.
1: <laughs> so that seems to have happened quite quickly, that artificial selection of of a particular... Top.
0: It. it Artificial selection can work much more quickly than natural selection because you select what you want. And so the agricultural revolution, I mean, it worked over several thousands of years. It just gradually got better and better. But even so in evolutionary terms, that's a very very short time. And pigeon fanciers, of course, can do it in really rather quickly um, because um, uh, you, you see the whole range of different pigeons. Dog fanciers is another one. I mean, look at the immense range of different dogs from a, you know, a little poodle through to a Great Dane. And that's all produced from a, um, um, dogs, which came from wolves originally. And they've been selected for different purposes, to look right, to run fast, to hunt. And so we've got a whole range of different dogs um, which have been produced by artificial selection.
1: And so you've mentioned Charles Darwin and and he was really key to to all of our understanding about evolution and natural selection, is that right?
0: It is. He he was a 19th century um, biologist. He was um, uh, quite a comfortable off man. So he was an amateur scientist um, because he could afford just to live on his inheritance. Um, And he lived in Kent, actually. Um, But he was famous because he went on a long um, voyage around the world in a a Royal Naval ship called HMS Beagle. And there he collected lots of um, plants and um, uh, uh, animals and studied them in the wild. And that's where he got his ideas from. But he wasn't the first to um, suggest evolution, But he was um, uh, uh, very important to suggest the idea of evolution by natural selection. Um, Evolution, that is that that animals and plants can change, had been talked about for 100 years before, including by Charles Darwin's grandfather, who was a very interesting character called Erasmus Darwin, um, who um, lived in Litchfield and then in Derby, Um, He's a fascinating character. He he was um, um, a doctor. He wrote all his science up in the form of poetry. I've got some of his original books. So it's all verse. I mean, it's very entertaining, um, or fairly entertaining, to read it. And um, he was a a doctor. He he only charged his rich patients, because he treated poor patients because they couldn't afford him. Um, He was... A very good doctor, um, but largely because he had one very good skill. He could tell you whether you were likely to die or not. And that meant that if you were ill, you could put your things in order... But if you were going to recover, then you didn't have to put them in order, and that might have been quite important because you might upset people with a different sort of will, I suppose. So he um, was um, he was very good at that. He was a very he was a Republican. He was asked to be, I believe, the doctor of George III, which I think he refused to do. Um, he um, was interested in all sorts of things, and he belonged to a society called the Lunar Society. This was a scientific society that met in um, the Midlands. Nothing to do with universities or anything. Um, It had people like Wedgwood, who was the potter, and uh, Erasmus Darwin and so on. And they used to meet once a month under the full moon, which is why they were called the Lunar Society. And they had a good dinner. I suspect they drank um, quite a lot of good wine. And then they rode home um, under the full moon after that.
1: (laughs) Is that still a society today?
0: Do you know it still is? Um, it, it, gets, um, it, it, it sort of comes and goes. And I've actually spoken at the Lunar Society, in, uh, in fact, I think probably more than once. Um, I'm not sure it's active at the moment, but it's definitely been active during my lifetime. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. Um, your, your book is, is called What is Life? Um, and it wouldn't be right of me to do this interview without asking you, what is life?
0: Well, I'll have a go uh, at answering it. I have to say, it's quite a difficult. Uh, it's very easy to ask; uh, it's not quite so easy to answer, and, and it's a bit complicated because you it, you can't answer it like a, a dictionary. You know, uh, it, you, you know, there's one sentence that defines it. But what you can do is take the five ideas that. Um, that I talk about in my book, and uh, and sort of boil them down to uh, uh, several principles. And the first is that living thing to describe living things, and uh, living things are chemical and informational machines based on cells, and that allows them to make themselves, to maintain themselves, and to re- reproduce themselves. So that's the first principle. The second one is that they have a hereditary system based on genes, um, and genes are found in all cells, of course, and these genes are handed down through the generations. Now, if you have a living thing which has those properties, then that allows them to evolve by natural selection, because if the genes exhibit variability then they can evolve by natural selection and acquire purposeful behaviours. They acquire purpose. And so that allows life, which is a physical thing, to actually get functions and processes that leave acting as a whole as purposeful, uh, purposeful behaviours. On our planet, um, life is based upon DNA, RNA that DNA makes, and also proteins. And we haven't talked about this yet, but all of these are chemical po- polymers. That is, just as DNA is made of A, G, C, and T, RNA has got similar um, bases. Proteins has, and so they're like four letters, A, G, C, T. Proteins have got 20 letters. And and uh, the DNA encodes proteins with a particular sequence. So, it, it, And it's the protein's that actually do most of the chemistry of life. So we, our life, all of us, from bacteria to us, is based on that chemistry. Now, I don't know what life looks like on elsewhere. Nobody does. We've been hearing recently about life forms, maybe in, in the um, atmosphere of Venus. We don't know what it might look like. But I have a hunch that it will probably also be based on polymers, because polymers can encode information. You know, if you take a computer, it's lots of um, bytes, bits. Um, If you read a a sentence, each um, word is made up of letters. If you're hearing both of us talk, we're talking with letters. All of this is digital, really. It's chains. And chemistry, um, polymer chemistry, is also a chain. So what you get with a, a, a chemical polymer... It's chemistry that can do chemical reactions, but it also can encode information as well. And that is very special.
1: Well, what, what kind of information could it possibly encode?
0: Well, it. if you think a protein is does chemistry, and that depends on having amino acids, which is what makes up proteins, in a certain order in a chain and with certain um, chemistry, something they, they might be have positive charge or negative charge. They might like water or not like water. Um, there's all different chemical properties. Which, and that determines what they can do. And what they can do is determined by the DNA and the sequence that, um, of the nucleotides that make it. So it's an amazing system where you have both information encoded, it's an informational machine, and that encodes chemistry, and it's a chemistry machine. So what I was going to say is, I don't know what the chemistry of life will be on, you know, um, Neptune or wherever, or Venus maybe, but I'm pretty certain that it will be based on polymers.
1: And all of this research you've done, you've you've talked about um, working with yeast uh, for a long time in your career. Where did the fascination with biology, cells and, and life for you come from?
0: Well, I, what I remember, I've always been interested in living things. And um, I sort of remember once when I was, um, I think, just a teenager. And I was sitting in my garden, which was in um, northwest London, in Wembley, where the stadium is. And um, a yellow butterfly flew over the fence. It was a brimstone yellow. It was early spring. They, They come out in March. And I watched the yellow butterfly and it flitted about and it settled on a flower, um, had a little feed, I think, and then I think I disturbed it and uh, it flew up and it went over the other fence, going the other way. And I remember thinking, you know, this this butterfly, it's really a bit like me, but it's also obviously very different. So what is the same about a yellow butterfly, brimstone yellow, and me? And I think that was the start of me thinking about biology, to be quite honest. And then, of course, I was taught it at school. Um, But it was just looking at living things and thinking, what is the basis of that? And how is it like me? And how is it different? And my book goes into this, but it's amazing, really. Because of evolution by natural selection, we're related to every living thing on this planet. So that butterfly is sort of my relative. And, you know, if you think more profoundly about that, you think, well, we have a responsibility to look after our relatives, and we need to care for the biosphere, for all the living things you find there, because we're related to them. And not only that, but actually we depend on them too. All the food we eat, the plants and um, and animals and fish... Um, if we didn't have them, we couldn't survive. and um the the natural environment around us is so enriched by um animals and plants, um insects and so on there, that we and we interact very closely with all living things. And so we're all connected, connected because we're related to each other, connected because we're dependent upon each other. and that's why it's so important that we maintain the biosphere. and I actually, um, and the l- other life forms, we have a responsibility for them, is how I say it, a responsibility. That's how I end my book, actually. I say we have a responsibility for all life. And, um, and, and what I try to do with the book is to say, uh, is to explain what life is so we care better for life.
1: That was Sir Paul Nurse talking about inheritance, evolution by natural selection and his lifelong passion for biology. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please do subscribe wherever you're listening to us. And for more big ideas about life, visit sciencefocus.com or check out BBC Science Focus magazine on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
0: Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science
1: Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.